an interesting backstory. I think it's important that everybody knows about the Wizard of Oz. A professional with decades of experience in her field. I'm a psychotherapist who works pretty much exclusively with law enforcement officers as well as other first responders. Strong opinions and a definite point of view. What people see on the streets, this job is not normal. Brutally honest and funny. When I get a call in the middle of the night and they've been drinking beer, they're normally crying over a relationship. When they're drinking Jack, they get on the phone and they start off with, hey babe. She identifies problems, probes, pokes, and makes you think. So if something happens to your family, which is truly your biggest fear, and you haven't thought about every single potential of what could go wrong, then you feel like you failed. She has her own special style. You're either part of the problem or part of the solution. Pick a side. Welcome to Step Therapy 911 with Stephanie Samuels. Welcome to Step Therapy 911 with Stephanie Samuels. And today we have retired captain Dennis Cronin from the Old Bridge Police Department. And uh, Dennis is the incredible author of Shadows on the Wall. It is an incredible name of a book, which really, I think, captures uh, not only what's in here, but truly what's in the soul of, of every officer. So, how's Florida? How are you? Good. How's Florida? Uh, it's warm, and I'm getting ready to have my other knee done. Fair so they got me. They got me kind of like quarantined in a house for two more days. But that's why you're willing to uh, do, uh, do the show. I would do it for you anyway. <laughs> so, so it was kind of fun to go back and, and to read this because you and I ended up meeting in what year, Dennis? Oh, for the first time we ever met? Yeah. Oh, my God. That was back when my son's police academy days. So we're looking at almost 30, almost 30 years ago. 1999. Yeah. 20 years ago. Yep. Where did that time go? I don't know. So, you know, over, over the years, one of the things that, you know, we'll, we'll get into kind of how we met, but, you know, you can tell a story, truly. I've been, I've been known to be able to tell a story. Like nobody else in the world can tell a story. One of our friends wrote us, a, uh, I guess they must have read the book, and they wrote back and they said, you are what they know as a raconteur. And I had to look it up because I didn't know what it was. And it just simply says you are the master of a master storyteller. I said, well, they got me right on that one. And that you are. And so, you know, over our, our, our years, you've been able to, to meet my kids, actually spend some decent time with my kids. Um, and they just love Dennis. Every kid loves Dennis. And, and they love hearing these stories. And so kind of speed up in our lives and back in probably what, 2005, whatever the hell is, 2005. Right. When I created Copline that you came on, and again, we'll get more into depth, but you came on as, um, as the VP. But the kids had already known you, and the kids just loved hearing Dennis' story. So as, as you became the, uh, the first of the indentured servants as vice president, uh, Nicole then, uh, because when you're my kid, you have to do all the really uh, shitty jobs. So she then became the first secretary of, of Copland. And so we were out to lunch. And I think Kathleen might have been there. I'm not sure. And we we're having a Having lunch over at Longhorn, usual table 94. Uh, I'm well aware of it. It's a special table. <laughs> and, um, and I remember, you know, we were talking about different things, and then you started talking about some of, some of the incidents that you had been involved in. And right. then you started talking about PTSD, right. and you started talking to Nicole about 
kind of how your life changed after you'd been in therapy. Right. And I remember going in the car with Nicole, and I said, now you see the other side. And she said, not so, not so fun, Mom. I'm like, I am not paid for the good, for the good stories. <laughs> Those are wonderful. And one of the things that happens so often with police is you guys lose the ability to laugh, to talk about those, those funny stories. So one of the things with you that I was always grateful for is that you always had that. But truly during those dark times, that's, that, had, that, that drops off. It just it wanes. So it's so it's kind of been been an interesting process, but I think that's kind of the, the the definition of a cop is somebody who really kind of jokes and everybody thinks it's water off of a duck's back, but the pain that's shoved down, the pain that really lives inside. Now, who the hell wouldn't want to take a job where all you do is laugh all day long? Hey, that'd be the greatest job in the world if you could do that all day. Right. The, the, the funny part about it is, and I don't know if it's funny, but back when I came on the job in 1969, there was a, an attitude that you didn't show emotions. If you had something that bothers you, you, you kept it inside because you were, you're the strong one. You're not supposed to cry. You're not supposed to tell somebody how bad you feel because you're the cop and you're supposed to be the one that solves problems, not be one that contributes to the problems. So in those age, those days, we would just keep things, just keep bottling them up and bottling them up. And after a while, like when we were at the academy that time, we were teaching the recruit class, you give an analogy that someone had told you about a hotel. And each in this hotel is all these doors, all these rooms. And all these rooms are, are critical incidents. And as you get them, you put them in a room and you close the door. And you put them in a room and you close the door. And this goes on and on for years of closing these doors. And one day, one critical incident comes up, and all those doors fly open at the same time. And that's when you realize that you have a big problem. So I, I just uh, do me a favor, uh, make sure that your, your volume's up as high as we can get it then on you. Um, so, so what you said I'm actually going to start with. So chapter 8, the school bus okay. and Jennifer. I had hoped 1970 would be better, but I was wrong again. The nightmares of the Christmas fire were still fresh in my mind, and sleeping at night was difficult. There were nights that I didn't sleep at all. It seemed like a bad dream from which I couldn't awaken. The smell of wood burning or a child crying would set off feelings of despair and helplessness. I needed to speak to someone, but who could I turn to? My pride kept me from being able to let, my to let out my frustrations. I was afraid the other officers would think less of me if I went crying to them. We are supposed to be able to handle any situation, show no emotion, and just get on with business at hand. Nothing taught at the academy could possibly prepare you for something like this. How was it possible? I would be able to endure, how would I be able to endure this for 25 years? Only time would tell. By the time you ended up coming in, I think it was more than 25 years, wasn't it? Yeah. I was, uh, I was probably seeing you before, um, before I guess before the, 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 really, the incident started to pile up. The first time I met you was with my, my son on his, on his uh, academy class. So, 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 so tell them about that. So, so I, I will share. So, <laughs> So I taught at the, the Monmouth County Police Academy. I started off with two hours, which then grew to a full-blown 20, which was amazing, and with a family night of four hours. And on family night, I brought in other officers and their spouses, and then would divide up the room, and my officers would then take the officers to, to talk about their stuff. My spouses would stay with, with me. And nobody ever wanted family night. So, so I'm now up against, and this is like, this is, as Ben said, this is 21 years ago. So I am, I am relatively new at this. I'm probably about a decade into being a seasoned bitch. And 
certainly had always had the the moxie <laughs> and the language. Um, and so unbeknownst to me, you know, and it's a pain in the ass. It's like at eight o'clock at night. Like nobody wants to be there, including me. But I've always found that it was beneficial. So I get snarky in the back of the room. So go ahead. Well, th what, what led up to that is that my son came home from the academy and said they're having family night <laughs> and they would like to have a family member come. Well, most of the recruits had family members that weren't involved in police. So, of course, why would I want to go there and listen to a speech about police when I've been a police officer for going on 20-some-odd years? So there's nothing that you could possibly have taught me that I didn't already hear. So, but I relented and I went with uh, another officer of mine, uh, Joe Miller, because his son was in my son's academy class. And we went there and we were not happy campers. So when we got in the door, we looked for the, the chairs that were way in the back of the room. In case you had any idea of calling us and asking us any questions, I didn't want to hear it. The best thing I did was I said to Joe, I hope she shows a movie because I could take a nap if she was. And I have never met you, so I had this visual picture of what you looked like only because of what my son had told me about you. So I'm saying to myself, okay, this is going to be some, some old hag that, uh, that's a, a, a psychologist that's going to come in here and is going to tell me how I feel about police work. And I says, and I'm not going to go for this. So what happens is that the door opens. You come walking in, and you absolutely blew me away because I, I consider you to be very, very pretty. Thank you. And I'm, and I'm saying to myself, well, this could be good. You know? <laughs> I was I mean, saying clothes, Dennis. <laughs> yes. I mean, I mean there's, there's somebody that is not going to be looking like this old hag, but she's got a pretty face. Maybe we should listen. And then I was also made aware that you like to drop the F-bomb. So I says, well, okay, how bad can she be? So your, your conversation started to talk to the people in the crowd, and it was like, I've heard this before, and I heard this before, and you went on and on, and I'm sure that we were in the back of the room raising hell that we usually do, not paying attention. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you hit on a nerve. And, of course, Joe, Joe didn't hear it yet, but it hit me. And he was going on, and finally I turned to him, and I says, shut up. I said, I want to hear what she has to say. He goes, what for? I says, because I think she's, she's talking about my life. And you went on for the next hour or so, and I was totally mesmerized by how much you knew about me but never met me. And when the, when the little meeting was over, I came up to you and I said, listen, I, I, am, I am totally blown away by what you said. I can't believe you know me. And I remember saying to you, if there's any a time when you need me, yep. I'll be there. But it was, a, it was a unique experience. I wasn't used to that. And then you were good to your word. But what I didn't know about you are the shadows on the wall. <laughs> well, that was, that was the one where, where you keep things inside and you keep things inside. Not too many people know about the shadows on the wall. So the one that really um, truly haunted you, that that you would end up going back to in the beginning was the motor vehicle accident. The bus? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm going to read the, the excerpt. Okay. You were on the job for 1970. So how long had you been on the job for? You were a young cop. Probably less than a year. Okay. So I'm going to read just part of it. Pulling up to the location, I noticed a group of people around a school bus. Looking down at the ground, I saw a small child laying near the rear tire. There was blood everywhere. It seemed that the school bus driver, while backing up, didn't see a group of children walking behind the bus. Three children were struck, with one being thrown to the side. The third, Jennifer McCauley, was struck and fell straight down. The bus driver never knew he hit the children and kept backing up. While doing so, he ran over the child's head, killing her instantly. I knelt next to her, took her head, and tried to hold it together. 
I remember sitting in the street, cradling her, refusing to let her go. The first aid members kept telling me it was all right to release her to them, but I couldn't. I thought if I let her go, she could die and I couldn't lose another child. I carried her into the ambulance, placing her on the gurney, gurney and, the only, and only then did I step back. I watched as the ambulance drove away, lights and sirens on, but I knew I had lost my, fir- my fourth child in three weeks. Yeah. So, uh... um, if you can, then just, just uh, yeah, there we go. Bring it down so we can see your whole head there. If we can adjust. There we go. There we go. Perfect. Um, I have to hold it so it, oh. sometimes it wiggles off. Okay. So what I what I didn't remember because it came and it was right before that was Andrew. Yeah. So I'm going to read the excerpt because I think that people need to understand. We don't. You guys don't get time off. You don't get time to mourn. You don't get time to process. Kind of this is this is it, and particularly back in 1970. So it talked about a fire, a house fire. It says, and Joe, was it Joe that was at the academy with you that day? Yeah, Joe was at the academy with me. Uh, a lot of the, the yeah, we're going back now almost 50 years, you know, to try to remember all these things. Uh, some of the the uh, the principles in it. My mind's a little cloudy. I don't know whether it was Joe was with me that day. I, I think he was, but it yeah. might have been somebody else. But that's what I remember. So it would be interesting that Joe would be there when you met me. So Joe took the children and gave them to some first aid members. Staggering on my feet, I remembered Andrew. As I turned to go back into the house, Joe grabbed me and said, It's too late. There's no one left to save. You'll kill yourself. He was wrong. There was one more. I had made a promise that I was going back. Once more, I was on the floor. This time, the heat was unbearable. My new winter coat kept the flames off my back, but my legs were burning. As I reached the door where I told Andrew to stay, I felt the doorknob was red hot. Using my gloves, I pushed the door open and called his name, but there was no answer. I slid across the floor and found him. There was no time to wonder if he was all right. I picked him up and ran as fast as I could hitting that that same front door and we flew onto the front lawn there were people all around with oxygen bottles and blankets as i was laying on my back looking up at the sky i started to realize that christmas was never going to mean the same thing to me again i was taken by ambulance to the hospital because they needed to check my burns and see uh, what the damage was to my lungs I was kept overnight while my hands and legs were treated for burns and I was given some pain medication. The next morning when I woke up, I heard some new nurses talking about the tragedy that happened the previous night and what a terrible Christmas this was going to be for that family. I realized then that my efforts to save them were in vain. I couldn't imagine losing my whole family, mother, father, and three young children. I closed my eyes, wiped away the tears, and said goodbye to Andrew. I could only hope that he knew I kept my promise and that I came back for him. It's hard to relive that. That is so close to the bus accident. Oh, yeah. And and Christmas, you know, there's there's got to be some type of guilt. You now go home where you have a family. What did this really do for Christmas? And what does it do today for Christmas? Kind of where's that whole thing at? Well, Kathleen will tell you that for the longest time, I wasn't able to celebrate a Christmas. When I grew up as a child, I had great Christmases. I had my mom, my dad, my aunts, my uncle, my cousins around. Christmas was a great time of year. But... But with those incidents, Christmas Christmas lost, I lost the spirit of Christmas. You know, it, it wasn't the same. I mean, it was a point where I couldn't even put up a Christmas tree. You know, when uh, when we moved out to Florida, uh, Kathleen had to put the tree up because I couldn't do it because it brought back so many, so many memories of Christmas past and I couldn't do it. It's not until just recently 
that I was able to, with her help, was to get back to decorating the Christmas tree. So, so one day when Chris was young, yeah, you decided that you were going to kill God. How foolish. But yeah, uh, in the book, it tells about an, uh, it tells about a time in my life when my, my son, my oldest son, Chris, he was two years old when he came down with uh, acute lymphatic leukemia. And it, I thought it would be the end of my life. But over a period of time, going back and forth to, the, to New York City, to Beth Israel Hospital, and every day thinking that this was going to be the last day that I would have him, and that the emotional roller coaster that I went through, it went on for about nine years. Every time I brought him back to the hospital, was this the last time I was going to have him? And it got to the point where it was a, I was a sergeant on the road, and it was a winter storm. I mean, it was a terrible blizzard. And like, excuse me, sometimes I get a little emotional about this one. But I pulled up in front of my church, and I was angry at God. I mean, I was really angry that he would do something to this little two-year-old that never done nothing. And why was he being punished? And I sat in my car in this blizzard. I had unhooked my shotgun in the back of my car and had it in my lap. And I was talking out loud. And I was talking out loud to God. And I told him that I was angry with him, that I was going to go inside the church and I was going to kill him. Now, that sounds utterly ridiculous now that I'm telling you the story, but at that time, I was at my wit's end. And the crazy part about that is that through all of this, across the street was the, was the, pre, the priest house. The rectory. The rectory. The rectory. And what happened was that the, uh, the tap, a tapping came onto my window, my driver's side window. And I looked up, and there was this little ball of snow disguised as a man, and it was, was Father, Father Mike, and he knocked on the door, and he was only, he was only, he was only about five foot five, he was a little bit of a guy, and he looked in there, and he says, he said, Dennis, what's going on? Because he had thought something was wrong with the church. Well, with tears rolling down my face, he says, I see you have a problem, can I come in and sit in the car? So he came in, and he sat in the car with me, and we talked for about three or four hours, and he told me, he says, listen, do not lose your faith in God. He said, God listens to you. And sometimes when he says things, he doesn't, he doesn't say no, he just says not now. He says, if you keep your faith, he says, I promise you, things will change, but don't lose your faith. And we talked for a while, and we talked for a while, and when I left him, I felt better. But two days later, I had to take my son back up to New York City, to Beth Israel Hospital, and... We went inside, and as the doctor would, there was a great doctor named Dr. Rawson. He was head of uh, childhood pediatrics, got oncology. He would take Chris by the hand, he would walk him away, and then he would do his test. And I watched him walk down the hallway, and Chris turned at one point and looked back. Okay. Just give me a minute. It's okay, then. It's tough. And I really thought it was the last time I was going to see him. About an hour and a half later, I was wondering why it was taking so long. <clears throat> and they came walking back, and he had his, Dr. Ross had a strange look on his face. And he said to me, he goes, I can't explain it. But he has no leukemic cells in his body. And, of course, I asked the most stupidest question of all, where he said, are you sure he had it? I'd done this for nine years, of course he had it. And I believe that God answered my prayers. It was, you know, it was powerful when you had, you know, spoken about this and you spoke about, I guess, the list you guys used to look at, who was on it or whatever, and just kind of, all the all the triggers to that day every time um, 
So that was wife number one? Yes. <laughs> How soon after that did the marriage end? Um, it, was, it was a marriage that was in trouble from the beginning. But, you know, you, you hang in there because you have children. And it was probably about another two years, three years after that, that, you know, we decided that you know, we're, this is not going to work for us. And I didn't want the kids to see that there was a, a with fighting and there was going to be a problem. So we, we went our separate ways. But I, I always made sure that when they needed me for something that I was there. So I didn't want them to have a, like this... Uh, um, a father that was only there for holidays, or the father that was only there when they needed something. I wanted to make sure that they had a good, stable relationship. And to this day, we have a great relationship. Wife number two. This is my wife favorite. I love doing this. <laughs> yeah, well, wife number three is sitting off to the, to the right here. <laughs> Which I know. I know you know, I know you know. <laughs> And I, I can feel the eyes burning on the side of my head. But <laughs> wife, wife number two was a great was a great marriage. It was very good. I mean, I have no nothing to complain about that. I have a beautiful daughter, Jessica, came out of that marriage. You know, and you know, uh, she was the light of my life. But something happened. Uh, she had my my second wife had a miscarriage, and the doctor said that hormonal that something something triggered a problem with her. And she wasn't the same person. And uh, it was hard to believe that I could have to go through another marriage this way. And, you know, we wound up resolving that marriage back in 1999. And uh, to this day, my, my daughter calls me almost every other day. Dad, what are you doing? How are you doing? How's this? How's that? I'm surprised I haven't gotten a phone call today because she knows I'm having surgery on Wednesday. You know, but uh, it wasn't a bad marriage. It was a marriage that was destined not to not to go well. If you had understood what was what the changes were going on inside of you, right, from when you took that job, could you have navigated things differently? Uh, in hindsight, you probably say if if I knew how to deal with the internal problems that were going on. Maybe if I would have met you sooner and we were able to sit down, maybe we could have worked things out. I just didn't know what was going on. You know, I was taught to keep things bottled up inside and not show emotion. And I think that might have been a cause. But, yeah, I think there might have been, there might have been a change. Now, I'm, I'm, only, I'm only guessing. I can't tell you for sure, but I'm only guessing that if I was able to talk about it. But on the other hand, she didn't want to hear those problems from work. She had enough of problems on her own with her own family, and she didn't want to hear what was going on. She just wanted to hear happy times. Well, I can only tell so many happy time stories right. before the, you know, the, the dark side takes over. So, so wife number three, I obviously know, and I know her well. Oh, yeah, you guys know each other very well. Is 25 years of marriage now? We have celebrated our 20th anniversary. 20th. We went up to New Jersey and we renewed our vows. That's twenty. So, you know, clearly, so, you know, Kathleen, Kathleen figured out, I think, I think Kathleen was certainly wired to be able to figure out and to deal with a cop. You were able to express yourself differently, whether that's what you learned from marriages or what have you. But what's really kind of stayed close to my heart is you've had some really dark, dark times during your marriage to Kathleen because that's really when you started dealing with your PTSD. Yeah. You know, there was, well, see, those times, they started to manifest themselves, but I was also seeing you at that time, so I knew how to, I knew what was coming and I knew how to deal with them. So I didn't, I didn't fly off the handle. I become I became a, be, a better person and a more calmer person because when I couldn't understand why this was happening or why I was angry, and now I understand why. But to have her around and have her with the personality that she has, 
it's like, well, you've met her, you know. It's like, don't worry, we can get through this. There's nothing that we can't do if we do it together. Very calming, just a way of being able to keep you very calm. Yeah. Um, and grounded. So with, with her ability to do that, also comes the ability to just take notes during... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that. It was only a matter of time before you brought that up. <laughs> so one of the unique things so that I had been told, obviously, when you knew when you met me, that when you spiked a high fever, yeah. that you would go back to the bus accident. Yes. It wasn't the fire, it was the bus accident. Right. And you would then be reliving it. Yes, over and over. So, um, so through our time, you and I had figured out, we were able to kind of process that one out. Yes. And, and it stopped. And I, I don't think it ever, it, it has never stopped. Okay. But I've learned to deal with it. Okay. And, yeah. Because... It's there. And, and, and you're right. Bad choice of words on my part. It's no longer the significant event that gets played out. That event. Right. So that had actually been kind of wrung out, though always still there. Yes. Um, before 9-11, it's almost like we needed to clear the closet as much as we could because we were about to clutter that closet with just floor-to-ceiling shit. I remember the day vividly that when I was sitting in your office when I was able to put the school bus to rest. And it was a breakthrough to me, and I felt like the world was now lifted off my shoulders. Because I remember all the time, and on, on a certain date, every year, I remember that date. I'll never forget that date. But I was able to deal with it now. And now when things are going so well, what happens? 9-11 jumps up and bites us on the ass. And we're now we're starting pretty much all over again. So September 11th, you were at work? Yeah. We had just finished a brand new building down in the beachfront area. And it was the, the county had opened up a park, a county park. And part of our job was to create a precinct down there to keep an eye on the park. So I was given the responsibility of taking care of that along with my other duties that the chief never, you never, if he gave you one, you never got rid of it, you just added to it. So he gave me that, and I remember coming into work that day in September. It was a beautiful, crisp day. Oh, my God, it was like one of those days that you, you can't wait to get to work. That comes up so often, Dennis. And I, and I remember pulling into the parking lot and walking into the building, and I, and I had a cup of coffee, and I sat at my desk, and... I opened up the window, and the smell of the, the, the salt water from the, from the, the water from the sea, or from the Raritan Bay, it was like, it was, everything was right. It was, everything was right in the world. And then I had, um, one of my guys came and said, are you watching the television? And I said, no, I'm not watching. He goes, well, I think maybe you should watch the television. And I looked at the television, and the, the trade center, one of the trade centers was just struck. And my first thought was, that's a hell of a fire up there. How are they going to? How are the firemen going to get up to a, and take take that fire? How are they going to put that fire out? Look how high up it is. But that's all I thought it was, just a simple fire. And from the top floor of our brand new building, I could look straight across the Raritan Bay and I could see the trade centers. They they loomed very high in the distance, but I could see them. So I'm just assuming that it's a fire. You know, I've dealt with a lot of fires in my day. It was like, okay, the New York City, uh, the fire guys, they're great. They'll handle it. So I went back into the building. It wasn't about less than, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes later that uh, one of the road sergeants, this guy, Skip Regan, Skip came in and Skip said to me, he says, hey, boss, did you see the, the, the towers are on fire? I says, yeah, I, I seen it earlier. He says, yeah, but they're both on fire. I said, 
what do you mean they're both on fire? He says they're both on fire. So we went out of the building with a pair of binoculars and we're looking across and we could see both of them burning. And then I handed him my set of binoculars because I wanted to go to the phone to call headquarters. And he said to me, he goes, one of the towers is gone. And my first, my first thought was, no, it's there. You just can't see it. Maybe the smoke is, is covering it. He says, no, it's gone. And I grabbed the hold of the binoculars, I put it back, and it was gone. As soon as I realized it was gone, the phones went off the hook. My beeper was ringing. The phones were ringing. My boss was calling. And we, used to have, we had beepers in those days. We didn't have the phone that we had for that. And I looked down at my phone, and of course, what, what day is it? It's 9-11. My phone comes in, my emergency number is, and it says 9-11. And I'm saying to myself, what, what's the emergency? Is this, well, why do I have to go to headquarters right away? I mean, something happened in New York City, but why do we have to go? I get him on the phone, he says, get here right away. He says, uh, you're mustering up a group and you're going to the city. And I went, okay. He says, you know, you're in charge of special operations. He says, we're going to put together a unit and you're going to go. Are you, are you okay with that? And I said, yes. And then the unit got put together and within a matter of 20 minutes, a half hour, we were on our way. You are down at ground zero for three days? Basically, yeah. Yeah, we got there late. Uh, got there late one, one the, I guess, the day of the 9-11, we got there that, that day at about probably about five o'clock and then we were there the next day and we come home the day after so you know cops mentality is they want to be there whereas civilian mentality is thank god i wasn't i know we've we've touched on this this has and this will be part of your existence forever. You made a decision for how many men did you take down? 20-something? 18 total. 18 men. Total. You changed their lives. Oh, yeah. Their lives were changed. I, I, I wouldn't give you that, that you changed them. Yet I don't believe that any one of them would have done any differently, just like I'm asking you. It's funny that you say that because... When 9-11 when happened, we used to go back every year at 9-11. I remember. And we used to just go to where we were stationed by Brooks Brothers, and we would just look across the street at, at where the pile was, and we would just, everybody would hold hands, and we would say a silent prayer, and then we'd go to McSorley's and have a couple of drinks. That was our routine. But it was always, you know, the camaraderie of that 18 you know, I, I don't think any one of them, if you asked them, would they would they not do it today? They would say no. They would go back again. And if you look at the uh, the statistics, those guys that have put those in the air that they were breathing in those days, and a lot of them, are, a lot of them are passing away from from cancer from one thing or another. I, I seen I seen an FBI report the other day that said 343 firemen passed away in that that disaster. There are more firemen dying today for related deaths that came out of 9-11 than actually died on that day. One of the things that, um, so I went to the museum, so I, I, have, I, I had avoided 9-11 for quite some time, um, or Ground Zero. And so I, I finally ended up going back and, and um, it was a retired uh, chief of Port Authority that took me and then she had gotten passes to go into the museum. And what I realized, so I wanted to find, I had had uh, a friend of mine's, you know, close friend had passed away afterwards from cancer. And so they've got, it's a big board, it's touch board, and you can find all the people that died. So don't forget, they've got civilians there, they've got, right. you know, everybody. So I put in his name and it wasn't there. Yet I know he's allowed to do death. And then I realized that somebody is going to have to update that board. Oh, absolutely. Because we are going to continue to have those deaths, and yet they're not being memorialized the way they should be. 
Yes. So that that was that was one of those those things that um, that that has just that stayed with me. Then, then when you spike a high fever. Yeah. I had told Kathleen that when you spike a high fever, that I want to be able to talk to you. Thank God you did. So, so you tell the story in only Dennis fashion. So I'm going to I'm going to indulge you on the uh, on the 9/11 uh, story, which, by the way, I was out with the family at dinner, hanging out when the call comes in. But go ahead. Okay. Well, you already laid the groundwork. But if, if I have a high fever, I uh, I tend to go right back to that 9/11, just like I'm standing right where I was when we were there, and. It takes, I don't remember it because it's almost, I black it out, but I'm, I'm, I'm awake, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not. So what happens is that Kathleen knows to get the ice ready and put the ice on my head and under my arms to try to bring the fever down so I come out of it. So arrangements were made that she would give you a call and you would try to talk me out of it as you did in the past. So what happens is that the nurses in the hospital and stuff that thought we were all crazy, but Kath was, Kathleen was used to it because she would, she would do it at home. Yeah. So a couple of times when, when this happened, you, were, you managed to talk me out by telling me that, you know, it's okay, my men are safe, yeah. you know, get back on the bus, get back on the, on the ferry and come home. And it, and it all worked, it worked well. But there were times when I, was, I would have a fever and it would break out and Kathleen would, would want to tape record it so she could give it to you so you could analyze it. And the, the running joke was that here I am burning up with 105 fever, and instead of you taking care of me, you and my, my daughter and my wife are sitting there with a notepad and, and, and a tape recorder taping what's going on so she could tell you. And I said, what the hell is the matter with you two? You know, and they would laugh. But, it, you know, it, it helped. It helped me very much. It, it, it also, I mean, that also allows us to, to understand kind of where, where you're stuck, like what it was for you. And, and although we, you know, we had an inkling of that, it, it certainly kind of helps solidify it. And yet, I would say on the job, far more good days than bad days. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Just to add a little, little footnote to that 9-11 story with the high fevers, the recent one that just happened recently when I was in the hospital and... And we had, you know, another a fever spike, and uh, Kathleen had to go there, and Kathleen had to call you on the phone, mm -hmm. and she said that it took an inordinate amount of time to get me to come out of this, mm -hmm. and she said the phone was by my ear, and you kept telling me it's okay, it's okay, you know, come on out of it, come back, come back. I just said stand down. Yeah, and you told me to stand down, yeah. but somehow during that conversation, I I said something, and that conversation was. If this bitch would stop talking to me in my ear, I'd be able to be okay. <laughs> and when I got, got, got home that weekend, Kat says, you should see what you said to Stephanie. I said, what do you mean? And she told me the story. And the first thing I said was, oh, my God, I didn't say that, did I? And oh. she says, yeah. She says, and she's probably laughing about it right now. Oh, I was my, so embarrassed. Oh, my God, it, you know it. But forgive me for saying that because oh. I would never have said that. Yet the stories are incredible. So one of the ones that I hadn't remembered which is absolutely a typical vintage classic, is the courtroom. Oh. I, I, well, there's two of them. Oh, so, all right, so we've got, the, so we've got, let's do the drunk. Okay, yes, the, the night court. Night okay. court. Well, what happened was that we had get, we have, we were getting a re recurring call <laughs> And this one area, because this gentleman was totally inebriated, and he was raising hell in the street. So the, car, the cars went back and forth, tell him to go in the house, you know, go to bed, knock, knock it off for the night. So they kept going back and forth. So finally, they said, my lieutenant at that time said, enough. If you got to go back again, bring him into headquarters. So, of course, they bring him into headquarters, and they, they throw him in a cell. And he's all crying and everything. So they devise a plan to stop him from doing this. So they were going to release him to go home. Because, we, you know, we didn't keep guys in those days. We let him sober up for a while. So what happens is that they say, listen, 
we're going to hold a night court. This was like 3 o'clock in the morning. So they said to me, listen, go put the judge's robes on and go into court. Now, the court was attached to the, to the old building. So I'm sitting up in court. The, the two other patrolmen, one was his defense attorney and one was the prosecutor. So now in front of me, I have this guy in his underwear, and he's standing in front, in front of me, and he's obviously he's really out of it. Well, what I didn't know is that they had told him, and listen, throw yourself on the mercy of the court, that this judge, he's a hard man, but he's a, he's a fair man. And if you just tell him that you're sorry, you'll be able to just go back to bed. So, okay, so they bring him up in front of me. Now, I start to ad lib. You know, watching Judge Judy and stuff, you know, now you're going to have to live a bit. So you tell this whole story, and the one officer who was the, the defense attorney says to him, tell the judge how you plead. And he says, okay, he says, your holiness, I never forgot, he says, your holiness, I was I was drinking too much, and I was, was getting out of, out of hand, and I'm truly, truly sorry. He says, can you forgive me? I'm going to throw myself on the mercy of the court. So now... They gave me the opportunity to pass judgment. So I leaned in off the, off the bench and I said, I understand that you, uh, you're you sorry for what you did. And I have a feeling that you'll never do it again. And meanwhile, he's, he's saying, yes, I'll never do it again. And I said, well, okay. And you're leaving the judgment up to me. Is that correct? And he said, yes, I'm throwing myself on the mercy of the court. I said, okay. I said, okay. Your sentence is, I said, take him out in the back and hang him. Well, his legs, his legs got wobbly. He started to go down. They picked him up and they said, hey, I told you he was fair. I didn't tell you he was also crazy. So they take him and they put him down in, this, in the cell and he sleeps it off for the rest of the night. Now, early that morning before the guys go off, off work, they sneak downstairs. They say, listen, we don't want you to hang just for being drunk. The back door is open. We're opening up the cell. Go out the back door. We called a taxi cab. Get in the cab and just go. And he's host, thank you so much, thank you so much. Out the back door he goes in his underwear. He gets in the cab. They drive him home. And he's, he's got, he's in the wind. But what I'm saying now is that every time that man hears a siren or, or a cop knocks on the door, he's going to think that they came for him because he, he beat the hangman. So it's really important, I guess, when you have PTSD to make sure that you share that with everybody else and you create it. you got to share stuff. <laughs> now, every, everybody told me over the years, how come you have such a good sense of humor? Yeah. And I said, well, i got to tell you the truth. If you don't have a good sense of humor, the things that police officers see, you go, you would go crazy. Okay. So you have, to, you have to think about the good things and the funny things. Absolutely. So as you know, so one of my family's favorite stories, absolutely favorite story, so that you are not acting in your official capacity as a police officer, but still part of the Irish band. Oh, you're going to go there. I know you're I have to. I have to. So, so... I, you, you you need to take us on that airplane. You need to set us up with all the boozing and all that's going on and the lack of sleep that you're going to go to your motherland. Okay. <laughs> Kathleen is shaking her head right now saying, don't tell that story. <laughs> I can see around the corner of my eyes she's saying, don't do it, don't do it. What happened was I was in a pipe and drum band. A very good band, but greatest bunch of guys you ever want to meet in your life. And we used to go over to Ireland. Like every four years, we would go over and we would march in the St. Patrick's Day Parade. And and we before that, we would march in the New York City Parade. So that day, we're marching in the New York City Parade first, and then we're going to fly over to, to Dublin and do it over there. Well, you're not getting any sleep, so you're exhausted. So what happens is that the plane lands in Dublin, and I tell you, I'm, I'm, I am wiped. So they tell us the, to go back into the bus and put our kilts on and get ready to go out, to go to the mass, but they're having a mass. So I said, okay. So now I am dragging, I'm the last one out of the bus because I'm so, so just darn tired. I get into this little tiny chapel. There's no more seats. The only seats that's available is a bench that runs across the back of this little room. 
So I sneak in the back door. I'm already late for church. So I sneak in the back and I plop my butt down on this bench. The bench is also right in the middle of the aisle. So if the priest turns around, he's looking right up the middle of the aisle. So I'm sitting there thinking that I can just put my head back, close my eyes for a little while, and he'll drone on about, you know, fire and brimstone that you have in the eyes. And I say, yeah, 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 okay, right. So as I'm sitting there, I'm looking down, and Father Terry was the, was the chaplain. He looks up the aisle, and he looks at me, and he's, and he's staring at me for the longest time, and I'm trying to figure out why is he staring at me. Finally, he makes this motion about like putting his hands together, like he's going to pray, and he's tapping his hands together. I have no clue what he's doing. So he's, he rolls his eyes, he leans over, and he gets a hold of one of the altar boys. And the altar boy leans in and shakes his head yes. He goes, okay. I watch him. He goes all the way around, and he comes up the other side of the church, right up to me, looks me right in the face, and he says, Father Terry would like you to close your legs because when you're wearing your kilt, we were regimental and traditional. There wasn't any underwear underneath. So he tells me, he says, everybody can see Willie and the potatoes. So I, for about a split second, I said, what? He says, yes, everybody can see Willie and the potatoes. You have to use kilt etiquette and push it down in the front. I was never so mortified in my entire life. So what happens then is that I rush back. I get on the bus. Now I'm hiding in the back of the bus. As the band's coming on the bus... Of course, now I am getting unbelievably ribbed about not having good kilt etiquette. So they, they travel all the way from Dublin to Limerick, which is almost across the entire country. And we we're playing for Corpus Christi Parish, which is Father Terry's Parish. These people have a big spread for us. You know, oh, they have night food in this. And the, the bands are playing. And, you know, and there's a big round table of these older ladies. So I go up and I pick up a plate full of food and I'm walking back. And as I walk by this table, there's one little old that she had to be in her 80s. She grabs me by my sleeve and she says, are you the one? And I says, excuse me, am I the one what? She says, are you the one that showed the whole church really in the potatoes? I said, oh my God. I said, it was worse than a telephone. It comes flying across Ireland in a matter of a couple of hours. So, of course, I add my little bit to the story and I said, well, what did the lady say? She says, I understand you have nothing to be ashamed of. <laughs> <laughs> and that was really a potato. I mean, now, Kathleen is now is hiding under the table over here. Because she says, I can't believe on the air you told that story. Quick love, Willie. That's just, yes. that, like, like, those are the ones that, that the kids, you know, and, and I guess you're blessed. Yes, I remember, listen, I remember at your 50th birthday when we flew down to your house in Oklahoma, mm -hmm. and we were in the barn, and everybody was talking, having a good time, and your kid said, Uncle Dennis, you've got to tell this one story. Yep. And I went like, which one do you want? And he went, you know which one we want. <laughs> and I said, all right, for you, I'll do this. I'll do this for too much other people. Yep. Remember, I walked the beaches in Aruba with your daughters picking up seashells when they were babies. Exactly. They love going with Uncle. How could I turn them down? Exactly. So at the end of the day, when the, when the sun sets years from now, what is it that you want to be known for? Uh, I just want to be known as a good person. You know, I don't want to be known as Dennis the cop or Dennis the, you know, the, the, the detective division commander or anything along those lines. I've done that because it was, it was my honor to do it. Did I pay the price for it? Yeah, yeah, probably. Emotionally, we all pay the price for that. But looking through the television and seeing all these things that are going on about police officers and this and everything else, and it's a shame because you know as well as I do because you've been all over this country with police officers. There's over 900,000 police uh, law enforcement officers in this country, and you're going to berate 900,000 for the sake of 1% or 2%. You know, when the incident happened out in Minnesota and the man died, any time somebody dies, it's a tragedy. I understand that. But what I didn't understand was that they rioted out in Minnesota and in, in Minneapolis, and yet they were throwing rocks at the, at the cops in Tampa. What did the cops in Tampa have to do with any of this? They're out there to protect.
serve. They put their lives on the line every single day. They have families. You know, they have kids. They don't want to go to their high school basketball or football game. They're just as human as me and you. That's why on the back of my book, I tried to put, I wanted the people to read this book and to understand the, the humanity yeah. of the men and women who put that their uniform on. They're the same. They, you know, they always say, we all bleed red. Well, we all bleed blue. And that blue is a brotherhood. And so I want to be known as a very good person. And I think I, I think I am. Yes, absolutely. Is there anything that you had wanted me to cover that I did not? Well, you kind of covered everything from soup to nuts. You know, I mean, the book, I'm not plugging the book, but I'm just saying that the book, if you really want to know the me, read the book. The book tells you what it's like. It's not Adam 12 that was on TV. It's not the rookies. It's not that. It's real life. You see things that you should never have to see in your in your lifetime, never have to see, but you do. The good good part about it is that Kathleen told me one time, she says, sometimes you believe that, that you made the wrong decision in being a cop. I said, well, sometimes I do because when I was when I was in school, when I was in college, I wanted to be a, I wanted to be an oceanographer. You know, I wanted to I wanted to go and do something else. If you read the book, you know, I did this because my dad. I love my dad dearly, and because he he wanted me to do this, I did this. Little did I know that 30 years down the road, I was going to make a profession out of it. But I don't think I would change it now. And she says, think of all the people that came into your life that you've changed for the good. So I said, well, when you put it that way, yeah, you're probably right. And, and the people who you saved whether it was a heart attack or a drowning or something like that, that their children are now going to save people's lives, that they would never be here if you didn't. So putting it into that perspective, I made the right choice. Good. Good. Well, I absolutely agree. Everybody needs to know. Dennis, how do, how do they get shadows on the wall? Well, there, there are a couple of ways you can get them. You can, I have a card here for a second. Let me see if I can find it. I'm at my desk. My desk is a mess. You can you can get you can go on Amazon, and you can get it on Amazon. And you can look up Dennis J. Cronin on Amazon, and it'll bring you to the book that says, you know, Shadows on the Wall: One Policeman's Journey. You know, I tell people, I says, you know, if if you want if you want uh, an autographed copy, most of the people down here in Florida, they they have me writing. I have arthritis in my hand, so it looks kind of like chicken scratching, but it, it winds up the that. Uh, the book you can get on Amazon. You can get it on Kindle. And there's a... Let me see. Kathleen just handed me a card here. To the greatest listener. It says, it says Outskirts. Outskirts Press. You can get you can get the book at it. And it's at Amazon. You can also get it. And and it, it just tells my life. You know, it's not anybody else's. It's just how I perceive things to be. And some, some of the incidents that I've gone through... And to put it in a simple word, it's my legacy. When I'm gone, and you know, one of these days I will be, my grandchildren and can say, this was my grandfather. And I have to tell everybody that we've covered some of the more serious things um, with Dennis because I felt that that was kind of important to, to the viewers to be able to, to deal with kind of the tough stuff. And But I will tell you, this book has dozens of hilarious truly hilarious stories <clears throat> willie and the potato is not in there so no. it was a must that that it was told um but truly just laugh out loud funny so one of, my one of my neighbors down here a friend of mine his name is uh, danny sueski he's probably one of my best friends and he has the book and uh kathleen was talking to his wife carol and Danny's a big guy. He's probably about 6'4", six, 6'5", six, and, you know, about 250, two 260. He started reading the book. And after reading the book, Carol says, I walked in on him, and I could hear him laughing sometimes. And then I walk in there, and now he's crying, and his tears rolling down his face. But that book runs the gamut of all this. I don't want it to be all fire and brimstone and blood and guts, because that's not, 
That's not what I want to remember. There were so many, like you said, there's so many incidents in that book that you can smile about. Yeah, and that's, oh, absolutely. That's, yeah, that's the, that's the true story of, of a policeman, is that it's not all bad. You know? There are more good than bad. Absolutely. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on and for and for sharing your story with uh, with Facebook Live, with your friends, with with my friends, because I feel like anybody that's watching is a friend. And uh, and thank you for doing the job that you did for so many years and wearing that badge with honor, Dennis. And thank you for stepping up when when truly I needed you the most to to breathe life into what was a what was an idea and a dream that today is a viable baby uh, without without me, which is well. I got to tell you, so. a cop line that you started way back when, when we were struggling from day to day, not knowing where we want to be the next day, to what you have right now, it's a statement on, on what what you can do. Now, I always tell people if you need help, call that number. Yep. You will have somebody on the other end of that line who will understand exactly what you want to talk about. It's not going to be some civilian someplace that maybe can't relate. It's going to be somebody who understands. So before you do something that's foolish or hurt yourself, call the number. Thank you. All right. I'm going to uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, everybody, just so, uh, so everybody knows. So I think it's important that when you guys go on Facebook Live, I really, uh, Facebook Live uh, with uh, Step Therapy 911 with Stephanie Samuels. I know there's been some streaming issues, so if you go on that Facebook page, from what I understand, that's pretty much flawless. Next week, we've got Dr. John Violante. So he is going to be talking on the inside look at a cop doc. And he is the leading researcher in the, in the country, actually, on police suicide and stress.